0: The French geophysicist Xavier Le Pichon knows fragility to be a fundament of vital evolving systems, in the Earth's crust and in human communities. He was one of the original pioneers of the field of plate tectonics, a key figure at a time when science not only radically revised its view of the world, but changed the way all of us see it. He's also spent decades living in community with people and families facing disabilities. And he's emerged from all of this with a rare perspective on the very meaning of humanity.
1: I think it's going to be a big discovery in in, uh, life sciences when they realize the importance of the fragility of human life and the fact that the human life is really uh, so fragile that it needs to create a whole new way of culture, of dealing with, with the others. The fragilité is the essence of man and women, and it is at the heart of humanity.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I spoke with Xavier Lepichon in 2009. Still a practicing scientist, he's also a lifelong Catholic. Since 2003, he's lived in an intentional community he and his family helped found to provide retreat for families caring for a loved one with mental illness. Before that, for nearly three decades, he and his wife raised their six children at the original French L'Arche community, centered around people with mental disabilities. Xavier Lepichon was born in 1937, the son of a rubber plantation manager in a region of French Indochina that is current-day Vietnam. During World War II, he and his family spent six months in a Japanese concentration camp there. When the war ended, they moved back to their native France. Let's just start by getting a sense of your um, your background. Wondering if there was a religious background to your childhood.
1: Yes. Yes, I had. My parents were committed Christians, so I was educated in the Christian faith. And actually, I can say that I've been a dedicated Catholic all my life. Mm-hmm. I've been going to to Mass every day since I was young. So, mm. see, that was very a, a constant in my life.
0: I noticed that you were born in Vietnam. Is that right?
1: Yes, yes. My parents uh, were living in Vietnam at the time, and... Uh, I had the war in Vietnam. Actually, I was in a concentration camp, like all the French with the Japanese. Ah. That was a strong experience in my life. And Ah. uh, I discovered France when I was uh, eight and a half, nine.
0: Hmm. And how were you drawn then eventually to studying geophysics?
1: Uh, That's um, something that came from my very early life. Actually, when I was in concentration camp, we were... uh, on the shore of the Pacific Ocean. And I was wondering what was below the the water, you know, when Mm. I was on the the beach. And I was saying, I have to find out what happens when it gets deeper and deeper. And this question has been present since. I I wanted to know about the deep ocean. I wanted to know about the earth. The earth has always been, uh, for me, a living being, uh, one with whom I share a lot of things. And when I think about it, when I model it and so on, I I have it in my head, you know, like a living being. So I have a very close relationship with Earth that I consider a little bit like my mother. Hmm. And uh, that has colored my scientific life. I wanted to know. I wanted to understand. I wanted to find out about it. And uh, the remarkable thing about science is you ask questions to The Earth, or to other object in the universe, and if you ask properly the question, you get answers, and you begin a dialogue. And I've been entered; I entered into a dialogue with the Earth since I was young, and I've never stopped doing that.
0: It's very interesting too that in your field, well, you helped create the field of plate tectonics. and it really is a field in which which experienced revolutionary leaps forward um, in your lifetime and that you were part of.
1: Yes. Well, you have to understand that when I was a student, the Earth was considered uh, the, a place where everything was um, static. You know, things were moving up and down, but never laterally. Continents had always been there. The, the ocean had always been there. Hmm. And I was educated in, the, in a world that... We call fixist, you know, things were not moving. And uh, we discovered that was completely wrong. Actually, the Earth is uh, an extraordinary living being with uh, motions of the oceans and continents and the thousands of miles and uh, continuously changing, evolving. And, and th- this was a tremendous shock. Um when I made the, the first model of the moving plates, you know, I spent three months working alone. I was 29 at the time, and uh, nobody wanted to work with me. They thought that was a crazy idea. <laughs> I was working all the night at the computer, and one night, uh, finally, I put everything together, and I found that, you know, the Hawaii was getting closer to Tokyo every year by eight centimeter, and things like that. and When I came down for breakfast with my wife, I told her, you know, I'm going to be the most famous man on the earth. (laughs) I have discovered how the earth works. You know, I really know it now. And I was so excited. The other type of discovery that I have made, which is the, I was the first one to dive in the middle of the ocean in the rift in uh, 3,000 meter with submersible, you know, landing at the place where... No uh, human had ever been, and actually no living being had looked at it because it's in complete darkness. We were the first to put light in there. Right. I had the impression, being a religious man, that uh, I was back to Genesis, you know, f- mm. finding out uh, the new world, which is, of course, an enormous responsibility, but at the same mm. time, it's extremely exciting.
0: So a second passion of your life I'll just put it this way, has been a presence and awareness to suffering in the world. And I, I'd like to ask also how and when that began to evolve in you.
1: This, this has, had been a, a major crisis in my life. That was in 1973. Okay. So by this time I was 36. And um, I progressively discovered that I was so immersed in my research I was not seeing the others anymore. I was, In particular, I was not seeing the people in difficulty and suffering. Hmm. And that was a very, very strong crisis. And actually, uh, it led me to decide to quit science. Hmm. And I resigned from all my positions. And I went to... Calcutta to Mother Teresa's place. I spent six week there working with the Brothers of Charity. You know, working in the streets, right. working with the dying people, and so on. And I had the meeting with uh, you know, giving uh, food to one of these uh, small children who were, who was dying of of hunger. He was at the last stages. Suddenly, I had this experience. That is, to me, the founding experience of humanity, which is discovering uh, through empathy that uh, you really are one with the man who is suffering. You know, mm-hmm. you identify yourself with this person, and this can be so strong. So, I made at the time the promise to this small child that I, I will try from now on not to ever uh, turn away my my eyes from somebody who is suffering. Hmm. And that was a turning point in my life.
0: So something that's very interesting to me about your approach to all of this is, let's say, um, the French philosophers and scientists of the 18th and 19th century would have looked at this child in misery in Calcutta, or would have looked at the earthquakes that you study as a specialist in plate tectonics and seen all of that and the suffering it created as a refutation of the notion of God. But yeah, you yeah. look at what you know from plate tectonics and how weakness is part of a system that, in fact, is alive. And this also flows into your your understanding of right. empathy and compassion.
1: Exactly. I mean, I think this is an, a very important point, which is, passed over nowadays, and I think it's going to be a big discovery in in, uh, life sciences when they realize the importance of the fragility of human life and the fact that uh, the human life is really uh, so fragile that uh, it needs to create a whole new way of uh, of culture, of dealing with, with the others. the fragility is the essence of man and women, and mm-hmm. it is at the heart of, of humanity. And once you realize that, you accept your own fragility, you right. uh, this is one of the things we discover in community where you live with people who have deep suffering, that uh, they re- make you realize that you have your own fragility, your own weakness and that you don't have to be ashamed of it. You just have to share it and and say, look, I am like you, you know, And, and and that really frees the persons.
0: After encountering that child in Calcutta, Xavier Lepichon returned to France and consulted with a wise priest he knew, Father Thomas Philippe. Father Philippe encouraged him to come live in the large community and share his life with suffering people but he also urged Le Pichon to continue his work as a geophysicist. And so, pursuing these dual passions of science and spiritual community, Xavier Lepichon continued to ponder the implications of the fragility that marks human life at its beginning, its end, and at places in between. I think that also you draw analogies between how a whole community works which is incorporating that fragility as part of its living being, and even what you know about how the earth works.
1: Yeah, it's true that uh, I was very, very um, impressed by one of these things, which is the, the way earthquakes are fabricated, which is that, uh, uh, you know, in the lower layer of the earth, where the temperature is high, then the defaults that are within the rocks are activated. And the rocks are able to deform uh, without fracture, become what we call ductile, you know, they flow. Right. But when the, the temperature is low and cold, it's cold, uh, like in the upper few miles of the earth, then they are rigid. Uh, these weaknesses cannot be expressed. And as a result, the rocks are much more resistant, much more rigid, and they react by Reach their limit of uh, resistance, and suddenly, bing, you have a major commotion and an earthquake. And and so, the difference is that in one case, the the defaults play a role in in, uh, putting weakness in that and, and making things. Much more smooth, Mm -hmm. you know, and in the other case, it's very rigid. And I find in the society, it's very often the same thing in the community, community which are very strong, very rigid, that uh, do not take into account the weak points of the community, the people who are in difficulty and so on tends to be communities that do not evolve. And uh, when they evolve, it's generally by, by very strong commotion, revolution, we call them in
0: Right, French. right. You make that and distinction uh, <laughs> between systems that incorporate fragility and evolve uh, and then systems yeah. that are, become rigid and then need revolutions yeah. to move forward.
1: There is a very simple example that I have found time and time again and experienced myself. It's a, it's a couple who gets his first child, you know, the first child is is extremely weak. Uh, he, mm. he he has no power, nothing. But he is really the boss right. <laughs> in the house. You know, right. as soon as he says, the, um, he cries, he asks for something. Up, everybody is is at his service. Right. You know, e- everything evolves around this new child, mm. and it is the same thing when in a family or community you really uh, are taking care with love of somebody who is sick in the last stage of his life, suddenly everything turns around about this person. Mm -hmm. And that is what is extremely specific of men community. Mm -hmm. Men community have been built around two kinds of, I call them poles, you know, centers. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have reorganized themselves Around the, the, the small one, the babies, because otherwise there is no <laughs> no life possible. So that's we share with all the mammals. But also the people who are in great difficulty because of suffering, because of sickness, because of handicap, because uh, life is coming to the end. Right. And that's really very new and special. You know, it becomes a society which we call human, you know, right, <laughs> humane. Right. Actually, in French we say use the same word, but humane. It is different from an animal society. There is a new touch, a new kindness, a new uh, softness, a new uh, way of living, which is completely introduced by the fact that you put the weakest in the center of the community and they become the one who are going to regulate the life of the society.
0: I'm Krista Tippett and this is on Being. Today I'm with the geophysicist and spiritual thinker Xavier Le Pichon. As you said, you you've been a devout Catholic all your life, but it, it also yeah. seems to me that these experiences that you've had, um, this experience of community, of compassion, that these experiences have also formed and nuanced your faith in very concrete and very theological ways. And I just like to talk about a little bit of that. I mean, I in that same essay where you wrote about that child mm. in Calcutta, you you said you suddenly understood the incarnation, the you understood Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken
1: me? Yeah, I think the, this is um, this is the mystery that uh, Jesus has asked us to get into, uh, you know, which is the mystery of uh, the neighbor who, who is suffering. And uh, he doesn't give a direct clue about what's going to happen, but he tells us, look, try, try to go to them and to live with them. And. And see what happens. How your life is going to be changed. This is what I've been doing, and I've progressively discovered that this was the essence of his message. You know that that God is mercy, and and God can be found uh, only in the measure in which you you enter in this uh, deep companionship with those that. Uh, he loves best because they need him most, mm. which are the, the the people having deep suffering. Mm. So that has been uh, the progressive discovery I made, and and then I began to look into, uh, you know, the history of man. Right. I found out that when you look at the history of man, as far as you go, you find that he had this extraordinary ability to empathize with the other otherwise you cannot explain why a man from neanderthal uh, 100,000 years ago in in iraq you know was able to to take care of a highly handicapped man in in a very difficult circumstances right, we, have, we, we have
0: evidence of that don't we that surprised right, scientists yeah the,
1: this and this is coming more and more you know in the beginning they were saying it's a fluke or thing like that but It's skeleton of people who are so physically handicapped that these people, they they were walking every day, maybe five miles, 10 miles. They had to to carry them on the back. They had to feed them. So how how did they decide that, 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 uh, no, we will not do like the animals to leave them on the side, but we will change our life. We will change our community to put this guy in the center. And to live with him, and we know that it's beyond 40 years of age. I mean, so it's a very long time.
0: And that discovery contradicts a kind of simplistic, I would say, simplified, straightforward Darwinian understanding of survival that would imagine that people who who had no utility, who were weak, who would drag others down – would simply be left by the wayside. Is that right?
1: Right. I, th- I think there is now among the, the scientists a great effort to understand uh, why man has uh, really uh, be able to go to cooperation and to uh, helping the others. Mm-hmm. But uh, the basic thing is not why man is helping the others. The basic thing is why man has this ability to empathize, to to identify himself with the suffering person, which leads him, of course, after that, to decide to help him, right. to share the life with him. Hmm. This is what's so unique about man. And this is the experience that uh, lots of very important people who have changed the evolution of humanity have made, like Buddha, like uh, Confucius, like... Uh, Isaiah, and like Jesus, of course, they say, what can we do about suffering? What can we do about the suffering person? What can I do about it? That's something extraordinary, and I think it is a basic, the basic human experience. You
0: know, I want to clarify just before we go on that, you know, for you as a deeply religious and I would say an orthodox religious Catholic, um, evolution is not a word that is in contradiction at all with your faith, right?
1: Not at all. No, I find that uh, the thing that uh, God obviously has given us is uh, the faculty to evolve uh, with the whole world. In other words, he he gave us a a creation— which is not finalized. And we have in our hands the possibility to finalize it. Mm. And he shows us that everything is not arbitrary. You know, it's not something that, uh, you know, he created some uh, species of animals, some uh, species of plant, and so on once and definitely, and he did it and that's it. No, he puts the system in root and he lets it evolve. He's there, he supports it. But he he does not arbitrarily change the law all the time, you know. It's an understandable system. It's a system that is given to us. And I find it extremely interesting and beautiful to discover how he has prepared all this possibility we have in us through the evolution.
0: And what I also find interesting in your work and your thought is that at the same time, you ask some different questions of evolution than maybe um, someone looking at this idea of evolution from a strictly scientific point of view would ask. I mean, you're very concerned, as you've been talking about, about how we evolved into what we call human, humane. And you've pointed out that we tend to tell the story of the evolution of humanity through tool-making capacities uh, and physiological evolution, but not these psychological factors. And you, you've you spent a lot of time in this essay, Eke Homo, writing about what we sometimes in English call the Axial Age, around the 6th century. BCE, where you feel there was a real psychological, uh, almost a spiritual step forward. So tell a little bit of how you tell that
1: Well, I um, I, I discovered after that, uh, that was told by me by a Chinese philosopher, that Carl Jaspers, you know, the philosopher, had already talked about this extraordinary sixth century before uh, Christ, in which there has been... summits of uh, philosophy and religion, which were uh, Buddha, Confucius, uh, the Second Isaiah, mm-hmm. and so on. And um, I was immediately struck by the fact that uh, this came after the Iron Age right. uh, began to modify very deeply the culture of man and introduced the culture of terrible uh, extermination war. So, that was a, a terrible time. With, you have power with and you have abuses of power. You have, yeah, mm-hmm. Abuses of power in, on a scale that we can right. barely imagine now. And then you have these people coming up and saying, uh, man is not that. You say man is not that. Right. You call them the prophets. the prophets. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are prophets. In other words, they are they are shouting a completely new message. Look, you are not like that. Man is not like that. Right. This is not the explanation of man. Man can fight the the harm, the difficulty, the suffering through tenderness, through kindness, through companionship, and and this is the same message you find everywhere. You know what. Do you do with your suffering? What do you do with the suffering of the Oz?
0: Right, and and that that's where I think your emphasis, you know, adds something because, as you say, Carl Jaspers has told this. Karen Armstrong wrote a book about the uh, Axial Age, but what you're pointing out is that Buddha, Confucius, Second Isaiah, Lao Tse—I mean, yes, this did give rise to new ideas of compassion and what it means to be human. But what they all saw and pondered is what you saw and pondered in Calcutta with that dying child and that is the fact of suffering and it right. was it was facing suffering that led to that kind of breakthrough
1: again it's this remarkable capacity of man of uh, identifying himself with the person in front of him that, who is suffering that leads him to recognize that he's like him that he's him you know uh, i like the word of Isaac, it's It's my own flesh. This person in uh front of me, yes, is my own flesh. This is this capacity of empathy. It changes the people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is the major experience that we have to explain. And I think biological sciences are going to look at that more and more.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? How biological sciences are looking at altruism and compassion, yes. And forgiveness. Altruism yes. is
1: is new, yes. <laughs> but they, but they work hard on that, and now the the I think they are going to move to to compassion and to the capacity of empathy, because otherwise they will not understand anything.
0: Well, me, you know, they me, need
1: to go beyond. Let that. me let me ask you this: This has <laughs> been on
0: my mind as I've been watching this de- mm-hmm. development in science, and so. Um, I love this story about Dorothy Day, the Catholic social activist, that she experienced the San Francisco earthquake when she was six years old. And she saw what you're describing, what happens after a catastrophe. She saw people pouring out to care for each other and to take care of each other. And she asked herself, why can't we live this way all the time? You know, life goes back to normal, at least on the surface. So do you have a sense of, what happens when people actually do turn their lives over to this and make this normal? And do you have any sense from the sweep of your lifetime that that maybe well, more people that, move in that direction?
1: That's a, a very important question you're asking. And this is one I've often asked myself. I've known some people that I considered, you know, very generous, very open and so on. And I've seen them progressively close themselves, you know, mm-hmm. uh, begin to shut the doors, to to be afraid of being invaded by by this problem from the outside, and and uh, it's as if their heart, you know, uh, was shriveling. Mm-hmm. And and why is that? I don't know. Others, you have the impression that they are. Always more and more open. I've known some extraordinary people. I met Mother Teresa. I've known, of course, Jean Vanier, I've known, uh, Father Thomas Philippe, and mm-hmm. so on, who are people who, who have this extraordinary capacity to, to enter into relationship with people, always open, and in relationship in which they immediately join, you know, the part which is most hidden and hurt in them. Mm-hmm. They have this capacity to enter into this new life, and it seems to deepen and deepen with time. It's as if you had two different ways. Mm-hmm. Now, for most of the people, it, it's something in between. Right. You have these kind of big awakenings when, when the big catastrophe happens, either a collective one like a war or major accident. But it can be also a tragedy inside the family, right. or just outside, and and um, they may react in a way that you cannot predict. Sometimes it it, very bad. Sometimes it it opens them up. So it's something uh, difficult. But my experience is that once you enter into this way of, I would call it uh, companionship, you know, walking with. The, the suffering person that have come into your life and that you have not rejected, then your heart progressively gets educated by them. <laughs> you know, they teach you a right. new way of being. Your heart gets
0: educated. I like that. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yes. We have to be educated by the other. Our heart cannot be educated by yourself. I mean, my heart cannot be educated right. by myself. Right. It, it can only come out of relationship with others, And if we Accept to be educated by the others, to let the other explain to us, you know, what happens to them, Mm -hmm. you know, how they feel, which is completely different from what we feel. And to let yourself immerse into uh, their world so that they can get into our world, then you begin to share something which is very deep. You will never be the person in front of you, but you will have created what we call communion the capacity to to share at a very deep level. And I feel that that is, you know, the essence of life. And that's what Jesus came to teach us, you know. Learn how to enter into communion with your neighbors, the way he called it, neighbors. And and then uh, you will discover something completely new.
0: You can listen again and share this conversation with Xavier Le Pichon on our website, onbeing.org. There you can also read his essay, "Eche Homo. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with geophysicist and spiritual thinker Xavier Lepichon. He helped create the field of plate tectonics. He and his wife raised their family in intentional spiritual communities centered around people with mental disabilities. In recent years, he's pursued his interests in religion, the history of ideas, and the life sciences, together with his knowledge of frailty and flaws as essential elements in living geological systems. Xavier Le Pichon has come to think of caring attention to weakness in ourselves and in others as an essential quality that allowed humanity to evolve. I feel that maybe because of your scientific knowledge as well as your faith, your understanding of of the human spirit and of the soul is kind of an evolutionary understanding. You know, I, I was struck by these lines that you wrote. Um, our humanity is not an attribute that we have received once and forever with our conception. It is a potentiality that we have to discover within us and progressively develop or destroy through our confrontation with the different experiences of suffering that will meet us through our life.
1: Yes, that is definitely a, something I believe very strongly in. Mm-hmm. You know, we have been born with a certain capacity to do things and in particular to develop our humanity, the capacity to interact with the others in a loving way. But this is a potential. It's not something which is given to us. Mm -hmm. It's a possibility we have. And and that's how we, we progressively change. And I think it's the same thing for the society. I think it has been the same thing for the humanity. The humanity doesn't have his humanity acquired once and for all, you know. It has to build it. And the confrontation that humanity has with the problems that come uh, at all ages forces invention of a, a new answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, in our age, one of the obvious uh, New uh, difficulty we are dealing with is the extreme age, you know, the very old right, age. Right. The fact that we have these millions of people who, <laughs> we who live much in, longer. in the fourth age, uh, mm-hmm. we call them, huh? uh, which is terrible suffering for many of them. Right, uh, right. We, my mother d- died of... Uh, Alzheimer disease, Mm -hmm. and I could see what this suffering was. And that requires from us to to invent a new way to to deal with this person, with this suffering, to make their life possible, humane, you know. And at each age, you have new challenges, and you have to face them. And this is how we build the humanity. The humanity is, is given to us at a possibility at old age, at at each birth, and, and it has to be constructed, it has to be built. It, it is hard work, it is very difficult.
0: Right, work. it is hard work, because what you have now also is this phenomenon of people, in in the U.S., they call them the sandwich generation, people who are at one and the same time raising their own children who need them because of their youth, and then taking care of their aging parents, who may have Alzheimer's disease, um, may have mm. any number of frailties, and uh, there are also the people, the caregivers, caught in the middle, for whom this, these are hard experiences.
1: This is true, but at the same time, you know, this comes from, uh, I think, a biased way of looking at what is human. What are human people? Right. Human people are not adults in full possessions of their means. Human people, it starts with babies, it continues with growing people, it continues with adults, it continues with older people and with the great age and people who who die. All of that is part of humanity. And humanity is not complete if you have some of these parts out. And, And the way to build a society is the way to integrate these people in a way in which he can interact and each of them can find out that they have their place, that uh, their life has a meaning, that they are needed by the others. So often I have found, for example, among very old people, that uh, they have the impression that um, they are not useful anymore. You know, mm-hmm. Nobody needs them. And then they want to go they want to go. So there is this this problem that the society cannot live by itself if it doesn't recognize that it is heterogeneous and highly diverse. right? And that the weakest have to get their place in there.
0: It would be possible to look around the world today, especially as we are all reeling from this, the uncertainty of our economic situation and And to worry that it's precisely the weak among us who are going to suffer just because of budget cuts, right? Um, Right. And people having to reel in their energies. Um, I mean, do you despair given this wisdom that I think you have about how we as human societies and human beings stay most alive by being very vitally present to suffering?
1: You know, I I remember when I was in concentration camp, I was eight by the time, and life was hard. Uh, All the babies were dying of of hunger, and uh, we were together. We were the center of life. We were continuously present with our parents' uncles and so on, and that is not a a bad (laughs) memory for me because I think even under stress, if you find a way to create a community which makes sense to your life, then it becomes extremely important. My mother was a very strong woman. And one day we, we got a message from the, the, the Japanese uh, governor of the, of the camp. And he let us know that uh, he will shoot most of the people next day. And my mother said, well, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but today you have to learn your lessons, so come. <laughs> <laughs> right. You see, this, this way of living the day as the present instant as something very important that you live together, that you share, and you can enter then in communion, which makes very often at times of a hardship or stress, and some people say after, you know, We discovered at this time things that we had not discovered elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So, difficulties are here, yes. And I think it makes sense for somebody like me that uh, believes in God that uh, the difficulties are larger now than they were maybe two, three centuries ago for the challenge for the whole humanity.
0: Right. Why does it make sense to you?
1: Because we have much more possibilities.
0: Okay. You know, mm-hmm.
1: Science and technology have given us the possibility to really answer to these challenges. This is the first time in the history of humanity that humanity has to take collective decisions, like for the climate, the energy, and so on. This is the first time. Right. This never right. happened before. Right. You know, it's an extraordinary thing. Uh, humanity is discovering for the first time that it is a people. Right. And that they have a power of decision on their future. It's as if uh, you know the humanity was had been educated by by God to arrive at a stage where it can now really take his future into its hand and decide about what's going to happen now. You know, it's like a, a child. The, the, the Neolithic and the Paleolithic were children, really. They, they were just struggling along you know they had no vision at all for the future they had no vision for for what's going to happen to the earth and so on but now we have this vision we have the possibility to to interact with our environment we have the possibility to take decision to change everything what it will be what they will do i don't know you know the answer can be wrong the answer can be bad but i think it's a very important new step in the history of humanity
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm talking with Xavier Lepichon. He's a pioneer in the field of plate tectonics, and he's also spent over three decades living in intentional communities centered around people with disabilities and mental illness. I how you do respond to the theodicy question because, as you say, we don't know how many of these crises of our time will be resolved, but we know that many bad things will happen <laughs> alongside good things, right? I mean, Einstein mm-hmm. said that technology in his generation was like a razor blade in the hand of a three-year-old, and th- there's a lot that happens with technology. I mean, we have bigger weapons now. So how do you respond to people who say... Um, the fact of all this suffering of of the huge dark side of our potentiality really calls into question the idea that there could be a good God behind the universe
1: I think this is a a very childish uh, conception of God Mm. God is is, uh, somebody who who is really in front of us very weak. He loves us. The the more you love somebody, the weakest you are with this person Mm. because you can be hurt by her and you don't want to force her to do something. You want her to do it from its own willingness. Uh, That is the attitude of God with us. And we have the proof of that for us Christians who believe in in Jesus is that the way he has uh, sent his son to save us, uh, he did not send a strong man with legions of angels and so on. Mm-hmm. You know? He sent somebody who told us, "You have the potential to change the the world, but I'm not going to force you. It's up to you to decide. It's up to you to to act." So, it's exactly the position taken by somebody like Buddha. Really, you know, right. right. You, know? you can change the world, but it's it's up to you. God, you know, is is a mystery, but It can be discovered only through the weak, the fragile, the the part of us and and around us. And then we discover that this has a power of transformation of the world, not through uh, very strong armies or or rockets or whatever that is.
0: You know, I was excited to interview you. I, I've been fascinated with plate tectonics, actually, Yeah. because I yeah. still, I think, I hear that informing your theology all the way through. Because yeah. Do you remember there was the terrible tsunami a few years ago in Indonesia? Of course. and
1: in Indonesia, I work on that quite a lot. In Sri yeah.
0: Lanka. And um, I interviewed a geologist named Yela De Boer. Do you know him? Yeah. He's Dutch. Yeah. When something like that happens, that was so catastrophic. So many people Aye. died, and you know, th- this this question is raised of this magnitude of suffering, and uh, you know, this where where is God question, and and somehow this Yale de Boer, he talked about how, with a long view of time and nature, that plate tectonics are what make life possible <laughs> and and restore life over time. You know, he, he said um, life is directly dependent on these geological processes that we don't know that other planets have this type of plate tectonics um, or these extensive oceans, and that's probably why there there may not be life there. He said, here we are lucky. We're lucky because of these processes where the plates separate and crack and where they run over each other and crack, and a, as a consequent of that, magmas form at deep levels in the earth. They are brought to the surface, and they bring not only nutrients, but also water, and that is the essence of life. I mean, it, it's this long
1: <laughs> yes, view of yeah. life. This, this is perfectly true. But if, for example, I look at the controversy between Jean-Jacques Rousseau and, and uh, Voltaire mm-hmm. uh, immediately after the Lisbon earthquake, Voltaire had said, how can that be a good God that is is uh, letting this... Uh, hundreds of thousands of people being killed by the earthquake and so on. And the answer of Rousseau was, look, God created them as people living in in the forest and so on. And if they had still been living in the forest instead of building huge buildings (laughs) in which they were lived, there would have been barely anybody (laughs) killed. Right. So it's the way man has chosen to live that is creating that. At the present time, we have, for example... Half of the megapoles, uh, those more than 10 million people who are close to plate boundaries, right. I mean, we have chosen to put them there. When I was a professor, associate professor in, in Tokyo University, that was at the time of the Kobe earthquake, mm. they had big discussion about, should we move Tokyo, you know, it's <laughs> in a very dangerous place? Right. It was a very serious discussion. Right. Should a... we move it to the West? It's true. They put it in, in one of the most dangerous places that is. That is the challenge of humanity. We are now 6 billion and a half people. Mm-hmm. And clearly, without science and technology, we cannot live in, anymore. I mean, science and technology is essential. But at the same time, we have chosen certain ways of life mm-hmm. in which we did not have time yet to test our reaction to the environment and we have uh, this problem to deal with. how are we going to tackle the problem of completely new implantations in which are not environment tested? Mm-hmm. That's one of the big challenge of the the future
0: mm-hmm. my my last question i I was reading your essay in a book on the history of plate tectonics um and you you finished your essay saying that you recall a colleague saying to you that never more in our life will we be able to contribute to such a decisive and exciting discovery. Right. And you talked about the extraordinary feeling of um, what you lived through of actually being involved in a revolution, a mutation of the whole of Earth sciences. And uh, I want to kind of come back to a question that we've skirted around and these passions that have consumed um, at least as much of the rest of your life after all those discoveries about humanity and suffering. I mean, how do you think about the effect, the success, <laughs> you know, the impact of that kind of energy that you've spent in these other decades of your life with other human beings?
1: Well, you know, I've, I've always in my life have this love of god love of my family love of of the world mm-hmm. <laughs> of the earth of the universe yeah. you know? and uh, i then discovered later on the love of the suffering people which i found could not be separated from from the love of god actually i could not go to god unless i i, I went through these people mm. and all this seems In a sense incompatible. You know, somebody once asked me how you maintain unity in your life. Are not you schizophrenic? (laughs) And my answer my answer was it's through prayer. I spend a lot of time in prayer. I I pray at least one or two hours a day. Mm. And it is through the prayer of God that unity can be put into this extremely different field. I think that's the Power of God that uh, when you ask him, He lets you unify things that apparently cannot be unified, mm. for example, when I was in Calcutta and I spent these months and a half uh, uh, with the people of the slums and mm-hmm. so on, I found out uh, this extraordinary way of belonging to them, you know I was accepted by them they 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 loved me, they treated me as one of them, mm. and I discovered you know they suffering, of course, but also the immense uh, joy, capacity of relationship that was in there. Right. So there is a a, a treasure hidden in, in each of the community, in each of the society, that is not possible to access unless you, you immerse yourself in it. And we have a tendency to see all of that through the point of view of... Uh, our occidental cultures, you know, right, right. we don't realize that there are treasures everywhere in this life that we consider um, uh, rotten life, life that have no possibility. Well, that's flawed. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is something uh, that uh, has to be recognized. That life has an extreme diversity, and this diversity is its richness.
0: Xavier Pichon is honorary professor at Collège de France in Paris. He founded La Maison Thomas-Philippe that provides retreats for families, including those struggling with mental illness. On Being is...
1: Tranquillus. Chris
0: Hegel, Lily
1: Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Annie Parsons, Marie Sambalay, Asid Zahran, Bethany Clecker, Selena Carlson, Dupe Oyebolu, and
0: Ariana Nettleman. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners are the John Templeton Foundation, the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build a spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of Public Theology Reimagined. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. On being is distributed
1: by PRX the Public Radio Exchange and is a Krista Tippett public production.